Last week, I walked through a story of redemption, and I was trying to account for all the themes that ran from chapter 5, verse 12 to 21. And we see there's sort of the big players, Adam, right, his trespass, and then everybody that sinned between him and Moses, and then you had Moses and the law. You had this idea of trespass, disobedience, an act of righteousness, obedience in Christ. You had condemnation resulting from sin on the one side, which is death in Adam. And then you had justification and life in Christ, and the reign of grace on this side. Where the increase of the trespass was met with an abounding grace. So that the implications were really clear that this period of Adam right, was always pointing to Christ. It begged for Christ. God always intended that this time, this, this dominion of sin and death be answered with the work of his son. That rule of death and sin would come to an end and the reign of grace as God and new life would begin. So Paul sets up these very clear, very clear corporate bodies. Now I'll refer to this again. Remember over here, not you people, it's all right. Over here you have flesh, sin, death, reigning. In Adam. Right? And I keep stressing that. In Adam, right? And then over here, I know you people, that in Christ, life, justification, grace. Corporate body over here, corporate body. Y'all get it? Now, we ask this, how does this reality get worked out in real life? Excuse me. What is life in Christ like? That's what we're getting into. Paul's been telling this story five chapters, and now I feel like we're going to break out of the gate and kind of get a sense of, all right, so what, is this, what does this all mean? How does this play out? in us. Well, we will start in Romans chapter 6. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, and I'll just read verse 1 to 11. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with, with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, 
If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Father, we do pray that you will do all that you intend by your word. We know that you keep your promises, Lord God. We know that your word will not return void. We ask that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would comfort us where we need comfort. And we pray in all of this that you would conform us to the image of your Son. In Christ Jesus, amen. You are dead to me. Have you ever heard that, that little saying? You're dead to me. Right? It's something that you hear in culture and all sorts of literature and books and movies and all that stuff. It can be funny. Right? You say to your friend, I'm sorry, I forgot your birthday. And they say, you're dead to me. That's something that Lane might say, I think. Well, you got it. It's more serious. You see it like in, you remember, the Godfather, right? Even if they don't say it, you get this sentiment, right? In the Godfather, you, you betray the family. You get, you get cut off from them. I was waiting to do that. (laughs) You see it in real life, too. I mean, honestly, you're dead to me. That might as well be like the the slogan of our culture. Everybody, somewhere, for some reason, is telling somebody, you're dead to me. Well, what we mean by that, it connotes this idea of rejection estrangement, and a relationship that gets severed. Well, you actually are positioned really well. You're dead to me is something that from your vantage point, you actually could say. It fits perfectly with your situation. You're dead to me is something that actually goes with this idea of life in Christ. And it's that way because of all that you have in him. We begin the look of this, uh, what life is like in Christ in just the first verse, the first couple of verses. We get met with an objection. Now again, remember that Paul's starting with an objection probably that he hasn't necessarily gotten from somebody in Rome. But you can imagine that it is an objection that he's gotten before. This continuing and remaining in sin. This is, let me start with this. And this is one of the reasons why I stress this sort of back and forth. This is not so much to start with about doing sin. That's not Paul's point here. 
It's not about doing particular sins yet, I mean, that's, but that's not where we're at right here, and that's going to be important later. Continuing in sin is more about being in a place, as we've already talked about, this place where death and sin reign. Remember again, chapter 5. That's what Paul has been unpacking for several verses. Two different bodies, two different covenant heads, Adam, Christ. He hasn't changed the game here. So you can imagine, given what Paul has said in his Adam, Moses, Law, Christ setup, that a Jewish objector might have serious concerns. So, so think of it this way. You had a, an objector saying, Paul, do you realize what you're saying? You're after this sort of abundant, abounding grace that you talk about. But do you realize that by removing the law of Moses, and remember by the law of Moses, I don't just mean the Ten Commandments, I mean the whole thing, right? Moses, that's shorthand for the Torah, which included the law, Ten Commandments, case law, the tabernacle sacrifices, all of that stuff. This objector is saying, Paul, listen to what you're saying. This is how mad you are. You're crazy, right? You move that out of the center, and here's what you're actually doing. You're leaving the people in sin. I mean, if Paul's not right, this is a serious charge. This is like me trying to give you something other than Christ. You leave the people in sin. You leave the people in death. When you, move, when you move the law out like you've done, Paul, you leave these people with no way out of Adam. Well, Paul's answer is that's not true. And he says, here's why. We died to sin. Now, here's what I want to do. Before we go further, now that's his answer. We died to sin. Now, this whole thing, the rest of this thing is going to be about how he did that. But I want to do it this way. I want to work backwards, okay? Because I think it'll be easier. So we'll jump around. So we're going to go to verse 11, and then we're going to go to verses 9 and 10, and then we'll come back to the first part of chapter 6. We're not going to get through the whole thing, but... So, fast-forwarding, verse 11, Paul says that you are dead to sin and alive to God. Let that sit on you. Verse 11, Paul says, so, you're dead to sin and you're alive to God. He doesn't just tell you that that's true of you. You're dead to sin and alive to God. He goes further. He says, you must consider that to be true of you. You get it? Now let that sit on you for a second. What does that mean? Does Paul mean that figuratively? It's like you're dead to sin, but not really. It's like 
you're alive to God, but not actually. That doesn't, that doesn't sound right, does it? That, that doesn't seem like that really gets what Paul is saying. So it seems that he's not speaking figuratively, he's speaking literally. It's the actual state of things. What does that mean? It means that you can't be alive to sin and God at the same time. Got it? And you can't be dead to sin and dead to God at the same time. So you're either dead to sin and alive to God, or you're alive to sin and dead to God. Or we could put it this way. Being dead to sin means being alive to God. And being alive to sin means being dead to God. So which are you? The Apostle Paul says that you are dead to sin and alive to God. You must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He only gives you one choice. He is saying here that you can say, that you must say to sin, you're dead to me. You're dead to me. Now, what's your response to that? Right now in this moment, as you heard me saying what I just said, I'm sure many of you kind of got where I was going with this. What was going through your head as I was saying that? Did it provide this sense of relief, comfort, warmth, excitement? Did you feel a little bit of distress, worry, maybe some concern? As I'm saying that what Paul is telling you is that you must say to sin, you're dead to me. Maybe it was a bit of both. I would imagine that for some of you, for many of you, you were thinking something like, well, yes. Um, okay, yes, that's good news. Great news. Dead, dead to sin. Well, I guess, though, um, here's the thing, I don't know how to say this, but I still sin. Does that bother any of you? Because you, you're all going, yes, you get, I, all of you, you get on the horse and you're riding, yes, we're dead to sin, right? And the, in the back of your head you're going, but I sin. How does that work? How does that happen? That's the rub. How is it that Paul can not only make this pronouncement about you, but can give you this command that you must, you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God? Well, it's true and I think you're here today because you know it's true. You know that you 
can and must say to sin, you're dead to me. But here is the question, how is that true? Particularly given, I still sin. How is that true? Well, we can bump up to the verses just before 11, 9 and 10, because 9 and 10 are the basis for what he just said in 11. So we know it's true of you. You must consider yourselves dead to sin. All right, now, now he's going to tell us what's true of Christ. Now, in 9 and 10, it's broken up very nicely. So like at the first part of 9 and the last part of 10, you've got this thing of resurrection, life. And then in the last part of 9 and the first part of 10, right in the middle, this chunk, it's about death. Actually, dominion of death. Or excuse me, Christ dying to sin. Uh, Christ no longer being under the dominion of death. Those two verses, 9 and 10, are giving us the significance of Jesus' death in, relate, in relation to his resurrection. Verses 9 and 10 are about Christ, about Jesus. Those verses presuppose that Christ came in the flesh. Remember, we talked about that last week. The second Adam, in the flesh. And in entering into the flesh, he enters into this corporate body right here. He enters into the realm of death and sin, where death and sin have dominion. Christ entered into there. Yet he knew no sin. We heard that in the reading in Hebrews. He was made sin. He bore sin, the weight of sin. He was judged. He was condemned. He died for sin. And in his death, he was exiled, severed from the Father. And then in resurrection, by the Holy Spirit, Christ was raised from the dead. Now, there's a lot happening in his resurrection. There's a lot happening to him. In his resurrection, we have this idea of sanctification. This is Christ. Because Christ is no longer dead and will never die again, he overcame death. He overcame the rule and the dominion of death. And because he is no longer under the dominion of death, he's dead to sin, dead to the power of sin, its rule. He's delivered from condemnation. Delivered from the curse. Delivered from the reign of death and sin. And it's not just that. He's alive to God. Which means, and this is you know, where you can pick this up. What does it mean for him to be alive to God? Well, at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, what we see is that in his resurrection, his reign, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet to the last to be destroyed is death. So Christ is alive to God in his reign at the right hand of the Father. That's sanctification. He's out of here. Raised. Adoption. That's another thing that 
is Christ's in his resurrection. That's at the beginning of Romans. Romans 1, 3 through 4 says, Concerning his son who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. Here it is. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That word translated declared. The idea is he's established, he's designated, he's appointed son of God. In this case, it's not simply that Jesus is declared to be the second person of the Trinity, the son. He didn't need to die and raise for that. That's who he always was. But you get something a little bit different here. Something that the resurrection affects. The one who comes God's son comes as David's son in the flesh. Messiah. Into Adam. Death. To suffer and die. And then he's raised. And by that resurrection, he is appointed son of God. He's inherited a name. He is king. That is what his resurrection affected. He is the one who receives the inheritance, the nation. That's Psalm 2. This is what it means, in short, that the Messiah who died was raised, appointed as Son of God, King, and he has all power. Acts chapter 13, 33, it mentions this says, and we bring you the good news, this is Paul, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in, Psalm, in, in, excuse me, in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's what's happening in Jesus' resurrection, adoption, the son, king. Justification is something that is coordinate with Jesus' resurrection. We've got sanctification, we've got adoption, justification. 1 Timothy 3.16, it says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, and here it is, vindicated by the Spirit. Vindicated is justified. Same word. Christ is justified by the Spirit in his resurrection. Vindicated. That is, he is shown to be just. He is shown to be right. He is shown to be righteous before God as he always was. That's the reason that, sin, that death could not hold him. One writer says, God declared the Son righteous and he vindicated him publicly, justified him publicly. Another said, Res resurrection reveals that he embodies the perfect righteousness that avails before God. In Christ's resurrection, he gets justification. And then, of course, in Christ's resurrection, he is the glorified, resurrected Lord. Right hand of God, a Father, free from the power and the presence of Adam, sin. All of this is true of Christ. Sanctification, 
adoption, justification, glorification. All of that is true of Christ. I cannot stress this enough. All of that is true of Christ. All of that belongs to Him. You get that? All of that is His. That is about Him. And because of all of this, Christ can say to sin and death, you're dead to me. So we got Paul saying something is true about you. You can say, you must say to sin and death, you're dead to me. And Paul now says, he bases that on what is true of Christ. That because of his death and resurrection, he says to sin and death, you're dead to me. So how does that work exactly? Do you get the problem that we have there? Paul is saying that this is true of us, and then he's saying that this is true of Christ, but how, do, how is that true of us and true of Christ? Well, it's true of you because it's true of Christ. Or we could say it this way, because it's true of Christ, it's true of you. And that takes us back to verse 3. Verse 3. All I want to do this morning, all we're doing is getting this foundation laid. How is Paul answering that objection, that serious objection? How is it that he can say, no, I, we do not leave people in sin, in Adam. Does it just happen? Magically? Okay, verse 3. Are you all with me on this one? Okay, verse 3. And I, this is literally how it reads. Do you not know that, ready, as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus, into the death of him, were baptized? As many as were baptized into Christ Jesus, into his death, were baptized. I mean, it's just a statement. Here's his answer. How do you know? How can you say? How can you stand there and go with what Paul is saying? Yes, I count myself dead to sin and alive to God. He says it's because you've been baptized into his death. That's the point. Baptism here is taken in a few different ways. One is individual, and I don't know, I don't think that they're necessarily all, um, they don't necessarily exclude one another. Baptism is taken with this sort of individual view, individual water baptism, okay? The second is spiritual baptism, like regeneration and conversion. That's another way that it gets taken. The third way is that it refers to a corporate body baptized in a past event. Remember, we've got this past tense thing that we have to deal with. 
as many as were baptized into Christ. I lean in the third direction. A corporate body baptized in history, in a past event. And that's because Paul, has, again, has already been talking about two heads of humanity, Christ and Adam. Adam affects one thing for humanity, Christ affects another thing for humanity. The second is that Christ dealt with what Adam did through his death and resurrection. We've already said that. And that the law functioned with a view to Christ. And he re the law revealed our imprisonment so that grace would superabound. So we have two corporate representatives, Adam, Christ. Two corporate people in Adam, in Christ. One under the reign of sin and death, the other under the reign of grace. So when Paul says, as many as were baptized, I would say what he's saying is that corporate people under that corporate representative, Jesus. Now, Specifically, Paul's talking Jews and Gentiles there. He's bringing them all together under that one head. But this baptism of this corporate community took place at the death of Jesus. It was real. Do you get that? This, and I, this is why I want to press this. This is not theoretically true that Christ theoretically had some folks baptized into him. He affected something real. That's been the argument of chapter 5. I lost my place. Oh, the corporate community was united to him then. What we're talking about is union with Christ. They were united with, brought into solidarity with him at his death. Now, again, if that sounds strange, listen to this. 1 Corinthians 10. And you could, you could turn there if you want. I don't, you don't have to. You can just listen. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says... For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, verse 2, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud in the sea. This is not foreign. Especially, especially since what Paul has been doing in four, five, well, three, and then five, he has painted Christ's work in terms of Passover. It's not an accident that he's now describing what happens to a people in the same terms that sound a whole lot like the Exodus. Because this, this is the exodus. Exodus out of here, over here. From here to here. Christ affected. 
a deliverance. In the same way, when the people came out of Passover, they went through the sea where they were rescued, while at the same time the Egyptians were destroyed. The cloud led them as they went through the sea on dry ground. In that, they were baptized into Moses. He was their leader, the one through whom God spoke and showed his power. The Hebrews said, I mean, Hebrews says he was a faithful servant over God's house, the people. Solidarity between Moses and the people links them to God's house. And this solidarity was marked by this baptism into Moses through the sea. Now, here's what's cool. Listen to this. You didn't have to be there for that to be true. Paul's talking like a true Hebrew here. Exodus 12 and Deuteronomy 6, when asked why Passover was celebrated, the answer is that this is what God did for me. This happened throughout the generations. It included all the people, though they didn't actually experience it. Are you tracking? They were not there when that real thing happened, but that real thing happened to them. In the same way, this baptism into Christ that Paul is talking about for this new corporate community, God's people, happened in the past at his death. And that corporate body encompasses, ready for this, all who held fast to God in the past, right? In anticipation of the coming Messiah, those who knew Jesus, those who stood there watching his crucifixion, those who lived in the first century after Jesus, and those who were yet to live in the distant future, all the way up to his second coming, which were not there yet. This is a corporate people. The whole corporate body was baptized into Christ in solidarity with him in that event. Through Christ's death, he's the Passover lamb, a new Passover was enacted, and a new exodus occurred out of enslavement to death and sin. And with him, a new corporate body emerges. Again, Paul answers his objector. How can you say, how can it be that your departure, your move away from Moses as the center to this abounding grace. How could it possibly be, Paul, that you do not leave people in sin? Paul says, because they're united to Jesus. That's how. That's how. We don't remain in sin. Because we're united to him. This is about you being united to Christ. The first thing Christ does is he comes and he takes you 
one who is in flesh, who's guilty and unclean and condemned and alienated from God and under the wrath of God, he comes to you and he takes you and he unites you to him. He imparts his spirit. He brings life. He gives to you faith. You exercise this faith to lay hold of the one who has laid hold of you. That's how. God counts, he regards you according to this covenantal head to whom you're united, Jesus, his son. And do you know what that means? You get what was, is, his. Salvation is not like Jesus going like this. Okay, I got some justification. One for you, and one for you, and one for you, and one. Does anybody want some sanctification? There you go. How about some glorification? That's not the way it works. That is not the way it works. You get his justification. You get his sanctification. You get his adoption. You get his glorification. You get his because it belongs to him. You don't have it on your own. And I can't get your justification. Or your, 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 I, can't get, I can't get your stuff because you know why? Because I can't be united to you. If you're a great person, I don't get counted as a great person because I'm still outside of you. We get counted righteous because of him, his righteousness, because we are in him. Does that make sense? Do you track why this is a big thing to get, huge for us to get this? We can say in a definitive way that we are not here. If we are holding fast to Christ, you can definitively say, I am dead to you. Or excuse me, no, no, that's not what I mean. You're dead to me. I mean, it's true, I'm dead to you, but that, you get the point. Do you see how you can say that? Even as you sit here, you've sat here, we're at 34 minutes. Don't worry, we'll get to the Super Bowl. I mean, you will. I'm, I'm better than you. I don't need to get to the, I don't need to get to the Super Bowl. I'll go read my Bible some, maybe. Maybe. You've sat here, guess what? You've sat here for 34 minutes, and I promise you, I promise you, you have sinned at some point in this 34 minutes. Lupe, right? You said. Woo! <laughs> everybody's like, I don't know. I'm not even looking at you now. I'm just gonna keep my head down. You have you're a sinner. You have sinned in the last 34 minutes. I'm not making light of sin. I want to make a point. Right? 
you will struggle with sin. We'll get to that in the remain some point in chapter six. We'll get there. The point right now is that yes, you still struggle with sin. But Adam, the reign of sin and death, you can say you're dead to me. And you could say you're dead to me because Christ says you're dead to me. You get all that he has because when we come to Christ, we get all that he is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great work of salvation that you have accomplished in your son. Father, we pray that that you would grant to us strengthen our faith by your spirit. Strengthen our, our, our grip on you. Father, would you help us to believe all that you have given to us in your Son? Would you grant to us all that we need to believe all that we have in him? Lord, I pray that you would, in a way that words, my words, could never quite accomplish, I pray that you would work in us a recognition this palpable, visceral belief that we really are in your Son, united to Him. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.